Hello, Avril Danchak here. Welcome to Teaching and Learning Consultation Skills Module 12, Managing Uncertainty in the Consultation, taking a deep dive into all aspects of uncertainty so that clinicians can manage it better and in less stressful ways. Introducing Managing Uncertainty in the Consultation. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Uncertainty in clinical practice is very common and I've worked with groups of clinicians of all kinds, helping them to think about uncertainty differently. I've asked every group similar questions. Do you ever feel uncertain in clinical practice and get a moment when you're thinking, what do you do when you don't know what to do? This podcast series is about that moment, the moment when you don't know what to do, and I'm going to refer to that as uncertainty in medicine. Every clinician in any field agrees they meet such situations, and I usually see wry smiles and grins of relief when clinicians realise it's not just them who feels uncertain. In fact, all clinicians face challenges from uncertain situations. The most honest of those clinicians will reveal that they face this pretty much every day, sometimes with patients or colleagues, at times when working as educators or trainers, and very often with families, patients with complex needs, or when working on call or out of hours. My colleague Dr Alison Lee and I have investigated the experiences of clinicians when they get a what do I do and I don't know what to do moment, and we've looked at this in some detail. We recorded focus groups of general practitioners in their final years of training and thematically analysed their conversations, which revealed many instances of uncertainty, some painfully difficult to cope with. We also observed how doctors in training recognised uncertainty, how their uncertainty related to the context they worked in, how they responded to uncertainty and how they sometimes fail to use skills that could have actually helped them manage uncertainty with less stress and difficulty. And that work helped to develop the approach covered in this TALC module. As clinicians, we tend to expect that our training, our education, continuous professional development, all the guidelines, the protocols and the multidisciplinary team meetings will somehow design out uncertainty so that we know what to do. Strangely, uncertainty doesn't go away with all this effort, does it? Although we know more about medicine than ever, our uncertainty about the way forwards can often seem greater too. When there are a myriad of things to consider and different options for diagnosis, treatment and care abound, this can make clinical practice seem almost unmanageable. Practitioners can sometimes end up feeling inadequate, thinking they don't know enough, or overwhelmed when practice feels too complicated or intricate to manage when time is short. This state of affairs is not new, nor is it confined to any specific branch of clinical practice. As far back as 1987, Schoen showed great insight in this widely quoted passage from his book, Educating the Reflective Practitioner. He says, and I quote, In the varied topography of professional practice, there is a high, hard ground overlooking a swamp. On the high ground, manageable problems lend themselves to solution through the application of research-based theory and technique. In the swampy lowlands, messy, confusing problems defy technical solution. 
The irony of this situation is that the problems of the high ground tend to be relatively unimportant to individuals or society at large, however great their technical interests may be, while in the swamp lie the problems of greatest human concern. The practitioner must choose. Shall he remain on the high ground, where he can solve relatively unimportant problems according to prevailing standards of rigour, or shall he descend to the swamp of important problems and non-rigorous inquiry? Uncertainty is the norm for us as we negotiate the swampy lowlands of daily practice, where the information we have to go on might be quite limited, or maybe confusing or contradictory. Sometimes the information is lost or inaccurate or ambiguous. Sometimes we're dealing with complex comorbidities that interact in unknown ways. Sometimes there can be simply too much information to make sense of. However, as we're surrounded by increasing scientific knowledge and limited time, it can certainly feel like we're in a misty swamp. There are many ways through the swampy lowlands though, and we can make progress even in complex and challenging situations. And that's what this podcast series is going to be about. In this introduction, I'm going to talk about how we sense that uncertainty is going to be a problem and introduce the key ideas that will be explored in huge detail during the series. These key ideas are, firstly, that uncertainty is normal. Secondly, that there are functional and helpful ways through uncertainty and there are also dysfunctional, unhelpful ways out of uncertainty. We can classify uncertainty into different types. And knowing the type of uncertainty we're dealing with can help us choose the right skills to achieve a functional way through. This is usually a lot less stressful. Another factor is that many skills that help with uncertainty depend on the core consultation skills of other TALC modules, especially modules 1 to 6. The links to the core skills will be highlighted in these podcasts, so you can go more deeply into useful approaches. Another idea we're going to explore is that understanding the deeper psychological and social effects of uncertainty for clinicians and patients alike can help in managing uncertainty more effectively and with less difficulty and stress. The psychology of uncertainty for clinicians and patients will also be considered towards the end of the series. There'll be some podcasts aimed mainly at educators discussing how to teach better ways to cope with uncertainty and to discuss some of the uncertainties that crop up in training situations. The TALC team has also invited some special guests to bring some interesting new perspectives to the subject of uncertainty. So the first idea I want to explore in this introduction is that uncertainty is actually normal. Really? Many clinicians think it's a sign of being useless. But yes, really, uncertainty is normal. Recognising all the uncertainties in medicine can be paralysing, no matter what your specialty is. And I'm going to think about some uncertainties that can never be avoided in healthcare. Firstly, As much as 90% of diagnoses are suggested by the history the patient gives. And of course, that history may be incomplete or untypical or may focus on aspects of the patient's experience which are important to them, but not the most salient symptoms of disease. Or they may even be symptoms that are frankly inaccurate because the patient is too embarrassed, 
in denial or too forgetful to be accurate in their discussion. In any case, the symptoms the patient has may, or just as often may not, point to a particular diagnosis, syndrome or differential diagnosis. Even if the story does allow a reasonable differential diagnosis, the physical signs may be absent or untypical. Clinicians may even disagree amongst themselves about whether a particular physical sign is present or not. Well, surely tests will give us the answer then. Well, we have to remember that all tests and investigations have false positive and false negative rates, which may mean that true cases are missed or that a positive test later turns out to be unconfirmed. Different people assessing an x-ray or interpreting a blood result may come to different conclusions because the distinction between normal and abnormal is not always completely clear cut. So are we home and dry if we have at least got a working diagnosis? Well, the treatment options for the condition may be numerous and even if the treatment options are clear cut, the particular patient may be the one for whom things don't go to plan. Perhaps their condition doesn't respond to the treatment or perhaps they don't cooperate with the treatment or they're intolerant of the treatment or they cannot afford the treatment. Although we know that pneumonia in general usually responds to antibiotics, we're not necessarily surprised if pneumonia is not cured in a specific individual patient, perhaps because they're very frail or they're immunosuppressed or have developed an allergy to the antibiotics or perhaps the antibiotics simply don't work for them. Of course, other uncertainties arise because many conditions require input from several team members or even several different teams. For example, the care of a dying person at home or complex oncology treatments. Such teams may have limited capacity. Certain members may turn out to be unavailable or of variable competence, and patients may not like their teams or find them hard to access. Finally, amongst all these uncertainties rest the individual clinician themselves, who may not have all the knowledge or skills needed to make the right diagnosis or management plan, and this may make them uncertain about the best way forwards. In the face of such variables, how do clinicians ever actually know what to do? Because they do usually know what to do. The uncertainty is pervasive and to a large extent irreducible. That's enough to turn the most sentient humans to despair, isn't it? But sometimes clinicians experience the urge to reduce what is unknowable to quantifiable probabilities and risks. And this has been called pseudo-certainty. There's lots of this in healthcare. For example, there are risk stratifications for cardiovascular disease or tools to determine the rates of response to chemotherapy as if this will help. But faced with a patient who says, will it actually help me? We must recognise our uncertainty more deeply. Our rush to obtain pseudo-certainty can often obscure that we often can't predict what will happen to a given individual. A patient with a low cardiovascular risk is not at no risk and could still have a heart attack bad things can still happen to low-risk patients. Similarly, an apparently high-risk patient may survive perfectly well and have no cardiovascular events at all. So should our patient at 9% or 11% risk take a statin or not? There is no clear-cut answer to this kind of question and the values and preferences of a well-informed patient can legitimately give rise to a variety of decisions and a variety of responses from their clinicians.
However, the fact is most of the time, most clinicians and most of their patients can live with the general kind of uncertainty I've just described, which is, after all, a mere reflection of the uncertainties of life itself. What clinicians are experiencing when they think they don't know what to do is different. This type of uncertainty is experienced when clinicians think they ought to know what to do and when they have the feeling that someone else, probably cleverer or more senior or harder working, would know what to do. The being uncertain may then be perceived as a personal failure that can feel threatening and shaming and uncomfortable. In this podcast series, we're going to explore and try to understand these situations in more detail to help clinicians use their skills to cope with them better. So what exactly do we mean by uncertainty in this podcast series? What is it that makes clinicians feel that they don't know what to do? I'm going to begin with some relatively formal definitions that are often used in research into the subject. For example, is uncertainty the same thing as ambiguity, signifying inexactness or double meaning? Or is it, as some people would say, a fact or condition that lacks firm predictability? Or is it perhaps more to do with our own thinking? In other words, a consciousness or awareness that not all the required information, knowledge or skill is available. That awareness is called a metacognition, by the way, and we'll come back to that. Han defines uncertainty as the subjective perception of ignorance. This is important because two people approaching the same problem and who may have similar levels of knowledge may actually feel quite differently. One may think they have good enough knowledge to go on with, whereas an exact contemporary may be doubting themselves and feel that they're in a what-do-I-do-and-I-don't-know-what-to-do situation. One definition that sums all this up is this. Uncertainty is the confusion, the conflict, stuckness, unease and or discomfort an individual clinician experiences when confronting a predicament in an individual patient who presents a diagnostic, therapeutic, general management, clinician-patient relationship, prognostic, ethical dilemma or some combination of these dimensions. It kind of sounds like everyday life in many clinics and wards, doesn't it? However recognisable these definitions are, in practice, we recognise uncertainty more intuitively. Some kind of inner alarm bell goes off, a thought process that alerts us to something unresolved or something unusual, or we recognise a feeling of being stuck. The inner dialogue of the clinician may go something like this. Oh, something's wrong. This information doesn't make any sense. Or, I can't get all this information to cohere together. Or, I feel really uncomfortable. The plan isn't working out. What do I do now? Or perhaps, I don't have enough time for this. It's all just too much. Or, my approach usually works, but it's going wrong this time. Or even worse, I'm stuck. All alternatives are impossible. I cannot think of anything suitable to do next. Sometimes it's easy to slip into blaming the patient and the internal dialogue is something like this is a difficult patient, they're getting cross or they're not cooperating or they're going off at a tangent. Such common thoughts highlight that uncertainty is a feature of the situation and even more importantly that attention should be paid to that uncertainty. This is a crucial bit of thinking about thinking. This is metacognition again. 
Often we try to bat the uncertainty away by mentally saying to ourselves, don't just sit there, do something, which isn't always the best thing to do. We should be saying, don't just do something, sit there. And then we can work out the best way forward step by step. We should stick to the difficult, slightly uncomfortable place temporarily and get our thoughts in order and manage our feelings actively. That's because when we're feeling bad about being uncertain, we tend to want to escape that difficult feeling as soon as possible. As the philosopher Maimonides said many, in fact thousands of years ago, the risk of a wrong decision is preferable to the terror of no decision. However, if clinicians make decisions just to get rid of an uncomfortable feeling of uncertainty, they're not always the right decisions. Ditto, agonising over a decision and being paralysed by uncertainty is also very unhelpful and can lead to delay or stress for all concerned. Accepting uncertainty as a normal part of clinical practice tends to reduce the sense of shame and helplessness that can creep in when we get stuck and help us to work more effectively by using various skills that will help. My aim here is to help clinicians think about uncertainty in a proactive and structured way. The second important idea is that there are functional and helpful ways through uncertainty and dysfunctional, unhelpful ways out of uncertainty. Accepting that uncertainty is inevitable is an important first step, but it's also helpful to recognise when dysfunctional ways out of the uncertainty are cropping up usually when the clinician wants to avoid difficult feelings. Here's an example of a dysfunctional way out. Jan is puzzled when a patient she's talking to is distressed by odd and confusing symptoms that don't create a clear picture, at least not yet. So Jan, feeling uncomfortable, sends the patient off for some scattergun non-specific blood tests because that means they won't have to have a difficult discussion about what's wrong with the patient. When the blood tests come back mostly normal, with perhaps a mild abnormality of very uncertain clinical significance, a slight change in the phosphate perhaps, the clinician now finds that the uncertainty has got even worse. What should they do now? Sending somebody off for tests when you don't know what you're really testing for is a dysfunctional way out. There are many dysfunctional ways to try and get out of uncertainty, and the podcasts that follow will cover these and help you to avoid those kinds of pitfalls. The functional ways through uncertainty will be described in all kinds of difficult situations too. The two other important ideas I want to talk about are that uncertainty can be classified into different types and that when you know the type of uncertainty, this can help you to choose the right skill to use, which will then achieve a functional way through. This is important because often the way through uncertainty isn't about knowing more, it's about having better skills. So classifying uncertainty uses a mapping approach, which Alison Lee and I called Mapping Uncertainty in Medicine, or MUM for short. Do you know, it's always good to have your kindly mum with you in tricky situations. And this mapping is based on just two questions. Does this uncertainty relate to an uncertain diagnosis? or to uncertainty about the management of the patient. The second question is, is it just one clinician and patient involved, as in a typical consultation, for example, or is a larger group, team or network involved as well? 
Now, if the uncertainty is about the diagnosis, there are two possible subtypes of uncertainty. If the situation is a one-to-one -one, one, when a patient and clinician are in a consultation, we call this an analysing uncertainty. If a diagnostic uncertainty involves a wider network of colleagues concerned with diagnosis, such as pathologists giving laboratory or biopsy results, x-rays or other investigations, or where a referral might be needed to clarify a diagnosis, yet there remains uncertainty about the best way to choose and obtain the necessary investigations, then we call this a networking uncertainty. If the uncertainty mainly concerns the optimum management plan for the patient, there are again two types of uncertainty. If the uncertainty arises when it's just the clinician and the patient together during a consultation, we call that a negotiating uncertainty. When there is uncertainty about delivering an effective management plan, when a group or team of colleagues needs to work together, we call that a teamworking uncertainty. These classifications can be mapped into a series of quadrants and these are shown in the PDFs that accompany this podcast series. Although many uncertainties can be classified as mainly being about analysing, networking, negotiating or teamworking, sometimes, life being complicated, more than one quadrant will be involved and a lot of skills will be needed. Here are some examples just to make things a little clearer. Mrs Allen complains of pain all over my chest and tummy and complains of tiredness, feeling mazy, and she wants some tablets. The clinician gets a bit stuck as they're not sure how to sort these vague symptoms out, and this is an analysing uncertainty. On the other hand, Mr Bex has recently got a firm diagnosis of type 2 diabetes and COPD. However, he refuses to consider any lifestyle changes, won't take tablets consistently and just wants some sleeping tablets. The clinician seeing him feels a bit stuck. This is a negotiating uncertainty. Mrs Cardle has iron deficiency anemia and was referred to have upper and lower GI endoscopy. She's been discharged as there appears to be no gastroenterology abnormality shown on endoscopy. And the clinician who sees her next feels rather uncertain about how to navigate all the possible tests, investigations and referrals that might cast some, some light on this situation. This is a networking uncertainty. Mr Dodds has lung cancer with multiple metastases and he's cachectic. He wants to die at home at his daughter's house. His daughter rings up three or four times a week saying she wants him admitted to hospital but he refuses to go and the carers are now reluctant to go to the house anyway as the daughter's dog tried to bite one of the district nursing team. This causes uncertainty about the best way forward and this is a teamworking type of uncertainty. It should be fairly plain by now that functional ways through uncertainty are not simply about knowing more. A clinician who knows everything about diabetes will not necessarily have any more success with Mr Beck's. What is needed is different skills. In other words, what you know how to do can be as important as what you know. A more experienced and skilled clinician may use different listening skills to understand Mr Bex's point of view more thoroughly and may use different motivational interviewing or behaviour change skills to help him consider different ways of approaching his care. Skills in managing pain effectively in a palliative care situation 
are not the same as the skills needed to improve situations where teamwork is breaking down. In the podcasts that follow, each of the types of uncertainty is explored in more detail and the specific skills that will help to create functional, helpful ways through are discussed and described with case studies to show how this works in practice. For some clinicians, the skills needed will already be familiar. What is needed is to ensure the right skill is deployed at the right time. For others, the skill may be new to them or be a bit rusty. It's then necessary to learn about the nature and scope of that skill and to practice it until it becomes familiar. Most people develop skills best if they get some feedback and we encourage clinicians to constantly seek feedback about their consultations. Perhaps ask a colleague to observe you or videos from consultations for review. Asking patients how things went from their point of view and listening carefully to the reply can also be most helpful. Another thing to remember is that many of the skills that help with uncertainty depend on the core consultation skills of other talc modules. The links to the core skills will be highlighted in the podcasts so that you can go more deeply into useful approaches. Some skills, such as teamworking skills, also depend on having effective listening and relationships building skills, which are also described in the core talc modules. Clinicians may feel daunted or uncertain when the situation is more complex, such as when delicate conversations about do not attempt CPR crop up, or maybe when people want to discuss domestic abuse. Talc Module 10 has very useful resources to help with these kinds of complex conversations, and Talc Module 11, Holding the Calm, has advice for clinicians facing aggressive or abusive situations. Later on in the series, The podcast will discuss the underlying psychology of uncertainty and how it comes to be so difficult for us all. There are some podcasts of special interest to any educator trying to teach on uncertainty and we have some interesting and inspiring guest speakers who offer a variety of new perspectives. Understanding uncertainty more fully leads to a more confident application of our skills and knowledge and helps us to acknowledge the rich and glorious variability of the human beings in our care. The ideas that are discussed in the podcasts are useful when reflecting on a difficult situation afterwards and starting to think how to manage similar situations better next time. When you use the principles regularly, they start to embed themselves in your brain and you will develop the important clinical skill of metacognition. I've mentioned this before, it's a very off-putting word, I think. It simply means that you are able to think about your thinking. And in even simpler terms, metacognitions mean that you can deliberately choose what kind of thinking process or what kind of skill will help you. For example, if your patient has a swollen leg, knowing how to use and how to explain your decision processes, for example, including the Wells score, will be the most helpful thing to do if you are uncertain about whether there is a DVT present. However, if the patient has a proven DVT but doesn't like blood tests or refuses to take any anticoagulants at all, then you'll need to choose negotiating and explaining skills to make more progress. It can also be comforting to remember that uncertainty is faced in many fields of work outside of clinical practice. For example, 
Making money remains an uncertain business. If it was more certain, we'd all be wealthy, wouldn't we? The Harvard Business Review has devoted a whole issue to managing uncertainty and calls it leadership in a permanent crisis, a scenario that many clinicians would definitely identify with. In business, risk is considered to be calculable, but uncertainty is not calculable. For example, in those terms, roulette is risky, but you can calculate the risks, but it's not uncertain because the risks are known and can be calculated. Dealing with uncertainty requires us to be comfortable with what cannot be calculated and also with ambiguity. Scientists and clinicians are generally not that keen on uncertainty and ambiguity, but remember artists celebrate that and they help to deepen our understanding of the human predicament. Much uncertainty in clinical practice might be managed more effectively if we replace our ambitions to be certain about outcomes, for example, Will this patient be all right if I treat them at home rather than sending them to hospital? With a more modest aim of having increased certainty about our processes for thinking things through. Developing confidence in knowing how to work it out. And perhaps, I don't know right now, but I can work it out and I will know what to do when... will help clinicians manage uncertain situations more confidently. It's crucial to develop the art of being comfortable with ambiguity or uncertainty, at least for a while. Trusting the process only works to manage uncertainty if the process we are using is robust and if the clinician remains in touch with the outcome so that plans can be changed in response to feedback or changing circumstances so that we are willing to change decisions and alter clinical management as needed. Working through these podcasts will help you to access the distilled wisdom and skills that very experienced clinicians often use unconsciously. For the rest of us, using the map of uncertainty in medicine is a shortcut to their expertise. Looking after patients is not like a recipe book, using a car maintenance manual or even a complex computer game. We use interventions of variable effect on patients whose diversity of physical, psychological and social and physical aspects we can only guess at in circumstances we have little control over, the social setting, timescales and so on. Thus being a clinician is not like being a mechanic in a nice workshop, but it's a bit more like being at the helm of a small boat in waters of uncertain depth, with currents and salinity that we don't know about, unpredictable weather and a fuel tank which has no fuel gauge. Next time you ask yourself, what do I do when I don't know what to do? Remember that all clinicians are alongside you in spirit. While these podcasts will not solve every problem, they will help you to know what to do when you don't know what to do, which is perhaps where some wisdom lies. I'm going to give David Eddy the last word on how common uncertainty is. And he said this in 1984. Uncertainty creeps into clinical practice through every pore. Whether a clinician is defining a disease, making a diagnosis, selecting a procedure, observing outcomes, assessing probabilities, assigning preferences, or putting it all together, he's working on very slippery terrain. It is difficult for non-clinicians and for many clinicians themselves to appreciate how complex these tasks are, how poorly we understand them, and how easy it is for honest people to come to different conclusions. So please join me and my guests in the podcast series that is TELP Module 12, Managing Uncertainty in the Consultation, 
and you might even find that you actually learn to enjoy uncertainty. Thank you for listening to Talk 12 on managing uncertainty in consultations. Make sure to get all the episodes by subscribing to the Talc Talks podcast on Podbean or your other podcast provider. All the podcasts and the other teaching and learning consultation skills materials are available at consultationskills.com. Our book, Mapping Uncertainty in Medicine, What Do You Do When You Don't Know What To Do? by myself, Avril Danchak, Alison Lee and Geraldine Murphy is available online and through all good bookshops.